because uh, this is kind of a record. And besides, on these Sundays, like right before Christmas and Easter, you guys look so good. So I figure you're probably not going to look any better than this. So, so I just like, uh, yes, yeah. Here's the TCF congregation on December 12th, 2021, with all those smiling faces and Joel making faces and <laughs> making gestures. And there we go. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> So good morning to everybody. It's good to see all of you here on this third Sunday of Advent. Have you sensed the theme so far? Joy, right? We've heard it again and again. We heard it in the worship music. We heard it in uh, um, the Advent liturgy, and now we're going to hear it in the sermon. Okay. So we start with Luke chapter 2, very familiar passage, beginning with verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news, great joy. That was the angel's announcement to the shepherds in the field. Now, we all like good news, don't we? Anybody doesn't like good news? You don't want to raise your hand and admit that you're just weird for not liking good news. One of the things that good news sometimes means, doesn't always mean this, but sometimes it means is that the corresponding bad news didn't happen or won't happen. In other words, it's good news mostly because the bad news has been somehow avoided. Can you think of things like that? It's been overcome, or maybe it's even been reversed in some way. And that's certainly true in the most significant way of the good news of great joy that we're looking at this morning, that the angel announced to the shepherds that night that Jesus was born. Now, of course, the bad news in this case is that we are all, every one of us in this room, we are all doomed for eternity because we are rebels in our sin against the holy God. But the good news is that Jesus conquered sin and death. He overcame our rebellion, and we can have eternal life in him. If you do an internet search for good news, you'll find all kinds of good news, bad news, illustrations and memes, along with other good news items. Like, for example, how about this doctor looking into the ears of a patient with a scope? And he tells the patient that the good news is I can read all the way down to the sixth line on the eye chart on the wall. You can probably figure out the bad news. Think about it. Or there's this doctor asking his patient if he wants the good news or the bad news first. The patient says he wants the good, and the doctor tells him they're going to name a disease after him. That's definitely bad news. Or how about this text exchange between friends? Dude, I have some good news and some bad news. Tell me the good news. Well, the airbags in your car work perfectly. And then there's the positive thinking kind of good news that we often like to hear, like this woman telling us that chocolate comes from cocoa, which comes from a tree, and that makes it a plant. Therefore, chocolate counts salad. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That's right. All of the chocolate fans, let's, I'm going to go have some salad for lunch. And of course, potato chips or french fries count towards your daily vegetable intake, right? And that falls into the good news, wishful thinking category. Sometimes we see that too, don't we? 
Kind of like this one, this t-shirt that says, good news, there is a God, bad news, it's not the one you've been worshiping. Now that's a slice of bad news that's universal, right? There is a God, but all have sinned, the Bible tells us. And the primary sin is pride, worshiping ourselves. That's the God that we worship who isn't the God that we think we know, rather than that holy God doing what we want because we want to. That's why we do those things. Because all have sinned. Because all have sinned, we need a Savior. Without a Savior, we are doomed to God's righteous judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, that's bad news, isn't it? That's bad news, and it's bad news for everyone without exception because, again, all have sinned because, again, no one is righteous. But God, but God, And there's the great reversal, the way we avoid the consequences of that bad news. But God, we read in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Word of God tells us that there is good news. Gospel means good news. And that good news, predicted by the prophets, planned together by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, from before the beginning of time, was announced to those humble shepherds in the fields by an angel on that very night that Jesus was born. That's why... On this third Sunday of Advent, we lit the candle of joy. Good news of any kind brings joy. And this good news doesn't bring just any old joy. It brings great joy. But we've all heard this so many times. How many times? Think of how old you are and how many years you've been hearing this. You've heard the passage of Scripture we read this morning. You've heard these, this story, the story of Christmas, right? So sometimes the report of that first Christmas, that the announcement of the beginning of Jesus' sinless life on earth on his way to the cross that saves us, is in danger every Christmas of losing its impact on us. Just as we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, that can, be just come, that can just become a routine thing. And we need to guard our hearts against that too. But there's a good reason we repeat these truths again and again. We don't want to ever think, well, gee, I've heard that before. We may. We may have heard it before. But we repeat it again and again because they're amazing truths, first of all. They're powerful truths. And we must guard against complacency. So we say them again and again and again and season after season. For fear of overstating and repeating something that we've heard in recent weeks from this pulpit, we can take the truth that is captured in this amazing story for granted. Imagine taking the love of the maker of the universe for granted. It can somehow become routine for us. We can kind of just go through the motions, can't we? 
at least during this season, a part of the reason for that is that our cultural celebration of Christmas is something that impacts how we treat Christmas, right? Now, I enjoy the Christmas season. I enjoy a lot of the ways even our culture celebrates it. But when that sneaks into our lives, it can sometimes make Christmas just a sentimental holiday, right? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, dreaming of a white Christmas, only 12 days of shopping before Christmas, and God help us all, Frosty the Snowman. Now, don't get me wrong, I really do love a lot about the ways that we celebrate Christmas, even including some of the secular Christmas music. It's become very meaningful to me. I'll be home for Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, which, by the way, some of you may know this, was written by Ralph Blaine, a Broken Arrow native. Did you know that? Ralph Blaine, who was born and raised in Broken Arrow, wrote, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. These songs are a part of my fond Christmas memories, as much as Joy to the World, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Silent Night. Now, I told Dallas Henry this week when we were talking that after growing up in western New York, where we had snow every Christmas, we never didn't have snow on Christmas, and so many of my most wonderful Christmas memories were of a white Christmas. I remember going to Midnight Mass. I was raised Catholic. I remember going to Midnight Mass with my parents and coming out, and the There was a blanket of snow on the ground, and the snow was lightly falling. We had just come from hearing wonderful Christmas carols. I remember that vividly, and I was like 10 years old. That was a few years ago. It was hard for me when I moved to Oklahoma to feel like it was Christmas when it was 65 degrees and sunny in Oklahoma a couple times on Christmas Day, right? Now, the fact is, over-spiritualizing stuff can be a joy killer. Everything has spiritual value if it is done to the glory of God. Jason Feathers, if you haven't been to the Feathers house on a a night during the Christmas season, you need to go by because that house is lit up. I think you can see it from space. But Jason does that as a labor of love, okay? And there's spiritual value. I'm sure that Jason does that to the glory of God. So, Here's the thing, as long as we aren't sinning, we can thank God for good gifts, whatever they are, and we can just enjoy ourselves. That's okay, even at Christmas. But rather than lamenting or even sometimes criticizing our culture's celebration of Christmas, because I think there's a lot, again, we can enjoy as believers too, even if it doesn't have a spiritual element to it. Let's remember this ourselves this morning, and let's determine to show the world what they are really missing at Christmas. Good news, great joy. The world seems joyless, doesn't it, these days? All you got to do is watch the news or hang out with some people. Uh, Because of that, they often settle for something that pretends to be joy, kind of like a joy light, a third less joyful than the real thing. But as we mark the Advent season with four weeks of heart preparation, let's think about why we do this. Because the angel announced the good news of great joy, real joy, real joy, real joy of sins forgiven, a relationship with the maker of the universe. Imagine that. And the future promise of everlasting joy in his presence. Advent looks forward to Jesus' second coming as much as it remembers his first. And in time, at least, It all started with that newborn 
in a manger. One writer notes, people are desperately searching for joy, and if I didn't have Christ, I think I would be too. Anything to lift the unrelenting gloom and seeming meaninglessness. But as believers, we should stop for a minute and remember that we have Christ. We understand the joy that is to be found in him. If that joy has waned, stop and take time to trace that word through the prophets and see the joy that the angels are so excitedly ecstatic about. The Savior of the world has come, and he has come not to rail against our search for joy in the wrong thing, but to help us find joy in him and so trigger joy and rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. One of the reasons I think we sometimes lose that sense of amazement and joy that it was announced to the shepherds is because some of us and because even some segments of our Christian culture have forgotten the reality of this announcement. In other words, what it means. It was news, my brothers and sisters. It was news. It was an announcement. It was something that was accomplished. It was done. The Savior is born. It was putting into motion in time and in history the plan that was for our salvation from sin, a sin that we cannot, that we could not overcome in any way on our own. What's good news that brings great joy? Well, let's think of it this way. There's a person convicted of a crime. He's locked in his cell, and he has a visitor come. And his visiting friend says, I have good news for you. And the prisoner says, well, what is it? And his friend says, be good. Be good. Would that be a satisfactory answer for the prisoner? Would that be good news of great joy? After all, it was because he couldn't be good to begin with that he now finds himself in prison anyway. So telling a person to do better, a person especially who's already imprisoned by his own inability to be good, in other words, try harder, just be good, that's not good news at all for the prisoner. Good news for him would be this, I have secured your release from prison. You are a free man and you can go home. Isn't that better news than be good? That's the focus of the gospel, my brothers and sisters, the good news. The gospel is a proclamation. It's a declaration of this good news. And it's not just good news. It's a good news that brings great joy. Augustine taught that even when you seem to be enjoying something else, God is always your actual source of any genuine joy. I believe that's true. That thing that brings you joy, that thing or that person you love is from him. Now, the Word tells us that every good and perfect gift is from Him. We find joy in good and perfect gifts, don't we? So the thing you love from Him is from Him because it's stamped with the mark of the Maker. All joy is really found only and exclusively in God. And anything good you enjoy is derived from God's good gifts. Because whether you are really looking for him or not, whether you know it or not, or whether you acknowledge it or not, God is the source of that joy. So Christmas isn't simply about a birth, it's about a coming. It's about the coming, the coming of Jesus, that indescribable gift of our salvation, our forgiveness. It's a coming of eternal life for us. This isn't just a story or a fairy tale. It really 
happened. It's an event that took place in time and in space. That's why in the Gospel of Matthew, we read the account of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Luke this morning, but in the Gospel of Matthew, before he even tells the story of Jesus' birth, Matthew gives us a genealogy. I read a great book called Hidden Christmas by Tim Keller. This book prompted some of the thoughts in this morning's message. And he noted in the book that when we see a phrase in a story once upon a time, that's an indication that it's just a story. It probably didn't happen. It may be a good story, and it may teach us something anyway. So there's nothing wrong with that. But when Matthew began the story of Jesus' birth with genealogy, what was he doing? He was grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. This was an historic fact. Here's why you can see this, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is not a metaphor. He's not an illustration for truth. Like Joel said from the C.S. Lewis movie, we only have three choices, Lord, liar, or lunatic. He was God in the flesh, come to earth. This all happened. Why is that important? Well, advice, like the guy talking to his friend in prison, is counsel about what you should do, right? News is a report of what has already been done. When we give advice, we're encouraging people to make something happen. When we hear news, we're prompted to realize that something has already happened. And we need to respond accordingly based on what has happened. Advice puts the burden on you to act. News says somebody else has already acted. If an invading army is coming to a city, think about this illustration. What that city needs is expertise. There's an invading army coming. They're going to conquer you, so they need expertise. They need advisors to help. Someone should explain and advise the citizens how to defend the city, how to position defenses and soldiers and tanks and military equipment. However, on the other hand, if a great king has already headed off that advancing army at the pass and defeated them, the town doesn't need this advice anymore at that point, do they? It needs a messenger. The town needs a messenger to tell the city the good news that the battle has already been won. Don't worry about fortifying your city against the invader. Spread the news. The king has saved you. The angel announcing good news was a messenger. And that angel said that something has been done and it changes everything. The biblical Christmas texts are accounts of what actually happened in history. They are not Aesop's fables, inspiring examples of how to live well. Many people believe the gospel to be just another moralizing story, but they could not be more mistaken. There is no moral of the story to the nativity. The shepherds, the parents of Jesus, the wise men are not being held up primarily as examples for us. The gospel narratives are telling you not what you should do, but what God has done. Jesus' birth, again, is good news. It's an announcement. The good news is that you don't have to save yourself because you can't do that anyway. God has come in the flesh. He has made a way to save you. In pretty much, think about this, in pretty much every other world religion, whatever you know about other world religions, what happens? Salvation is something you have to struggle for. You have to work for. You have to earn it. It only comes if you pray, if you obey, or you transform your consciousness. 
But Christianity is different. Other religions say, do all this. That's advice. That's not news. But Jesus said, you couldn't. You weren't able to come up to me, so I had to come down to you. That's news, my brothers and sisters. Good news of great joy. Of course, Christmas is just the beginning of Jesus' story. We know that, of how God came to save us. The gospel inevitably also includes Jesus' sinless life, his preaching, his death, his resurrection. But the incarnation is part one of the story. The critical introduction with the sequels of all those other things bringing the rest of the story. But this sets the stage for it all. The incarnation. God with us. The Word made flesh who lived among us. Amazing grace. Good news of great joy. So Christianity isn't ultimately about being a moral person. It isn't about getting inspiration and guidance for life, though these things certainly should flow from our salvation. It's about what God has already accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter how we live our lives after we come to Christ for salvation. It does. Those kinds of things inevitably result from truly believing the good news and receiving by faith Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. So, of course, the gospel does have huge implications for how we live. But before all that, before the gospel changes us, and, of course, even that change is also a response to the grace gift that we're exploring this morning, the gospel is first and foremost a message that we need saving and God has given a Savior. We're saved not by what we can or must do, but by what God has already done. We're saved by believing the report, the news. So let's think of that city we just talked about a minute ago. The, verse, the difference between advice and the messenger who said, hey, the king has saved us. What if the people kept working at, well, we better, we, just to be sure, maybe we better keep you know, fortifying our city, right? That's the difference here, right? We will leave the report. Did God really come as a human, like us in every way except without sin? Did Jesus really live that sinless life? Did he willingly go to the cross? Did he suffer and die for me? Did he really rise from the dead? If we believe the report of the good news, it will bring great joy. Because if we believe these things, all of the rest of what the Bible says about how we should live, how we are to respond, all of a sudden begins to make sense because of what God has already done. If we think of some fairy tales and stories, think of some uh, stories that you've seen, like how about Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or Sleeping Beauty or Beauty and the Beast or the Legend of King Arthur, even some of the Star Wars or Marvel's Avengers movies. We know that they're not true, but they reflect some things that we seem to long for in our hearts and in our minds. Things like experiencing the supernatural or the amazing. Things like escaping death or experiencing a love that we can never lose or to defeat evil. When such stories like this are told well, and a lot of them are, they're very satisfying, aren't they? They're even often emotionally moving. Why do you think that is? 
I think they fulfill a need we have. We hear these stories and they stir us because deep inside our hearts we believe or at least want to believe that these things are true. Death should not be the end. We should not lose our loved ones. Evil should not triumph. So good news of great joy fulfills these longings in our human hearts so much better. It's a true story, one that actually happened, one we can believe in. There's a Savior from a different world. Imagine this in a movie, right? There's a Savior from a different world. He has miraculous superpowers. He can control the weather. He can heal people. He can multiply food. He can walk on water. He can even raise the dead. He's killed by his enemies. And for a little while, his friends think all hope is lost. But it isn't. He rises from the dead and saves the world. What a great story. What good news of great joy. Keller writes, Jesus has come from that eternal supernatural world that we sense is there, that our hearts know is there, even though our heads might say no. These are the things that we should call to mind when we celebrate Christmas. The incredibly good news of amazingly great joy. And we must remember that Jesus' death was the main reason for him coming in the first place. The reason for his birth was his death. Now, you might be thinking, gee, Bill, what a Christmas Debbie Downer you are. Huh? We, why do we have to talk about Jesus' death? We're celebrating his birth, right? Can't we at least wait until Holy Week to remember that? Can't we just enjoy sweet baby Jesus for a little while? Sorry, but no. One reason we have communion every Sunday, the atonement, Jesus taking our place in the punishment for the sin, the punishment we so richly deserve, is the real reason for the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus was born to die for us. Calvary is the real reason for Bethlehem. But since we know the end of the story, well, we, you, you ever do that? You ever read? You want, you want to catch the end first because you're afraid of how it might turn out? We know the end of the story, right? It's all part of the good news of great joy. We don't have the ability or will to save ourselves. If we're going to be saved, God must do it. Since we humans rebelled and we got ourselves in this mess to begin with, it needs a human who can set things right again. That means our Savior has to be both God and man, and there's only one candidate for the job who qualifies. Jesus, God the Son, who paid the price, offered the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. God himself undertook to pay the cost to offer a sacrifice so tremendous that the gravity or the seriousness of his condemnation of sin should be absolutely beyond question, even as he forgave it, while at the same time the love which impelled him to pay the price would be the wonder of angels and would call forth the worshiping gratitude of the redeemed sinner. We we are those redeemed sinners. And our gratitude for this gift leads to worship. That brings me to a final related thought. How God accomplished our salvation is the wonder of angels. Think about this. An angel announced this good news on the night of Jesus' birth. But the Bible tells us that angels wish they could know more about redemption. 
than they can apparently fully grasp. Now, this is a startling thought when you begin to think about it. But we see it expressed in Scripture in a passage where Peter is recounting the prophetic statements about God's plan of salvation. But he adds an interesting element, almost as an aside at the end of it. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, for he's writing about the prophets. And he says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced. There's the announcement we've been looking at. Announced to you through those who preach the good news. There's the good news again. To you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then here's that little aside at the end. Things into which angels long to look. Imagine that. An angel announced this good news on that night that Jesus was born. But Peter tells us this good news is something the angels wish they knew more about. We're still talking about salvation here, right? That's what we spent most of this morning's message kind of unpacking, exploring the amazing riches of our salvation. Angels are often messengers, just like the one who spoke to the shepherds. We see in Scripture that sometimes they do battle in the heavenlies. But ultimately, despite the fact that they are spiritual, supernatural beings, they are also created beings, just like us. Part of their job description as created beings is to glorify God, their maker. Consequently, they desire to explore more why God is so worthy of glory. That's why they long to look into redemption. The gospel is so exciting to them that they want to study it intently. Isn't it interesting that we who are in Christ have experienced something that the angels haven't? Have you ever thought about that? The angels witness creation. They've been witnesses of all of human history. They witness Jesus' life, his death and resurrection. We haven't. We have an account of it, but we haven't witnessed it. They witness the miracles of Moses. They witness the miracles of the apostles, the growth of the church. They know God's plan of salvation, his redemption of his sinful creatures. They've witnessed countless millions throughout history being saved. In Luke 15, 10, it tells us there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Yet though they do rejoice when a sinner is saved, they've never experienced personally what it is to be lost in sin, to have a heart of stone, unwilling and unable to honor and glorify God, and then have the God, the Holy Spirit, come into a heart, give grace to receive the forgiveness of God, and turn that heart of cold, hard stone into a heart of soft, warm, and willing flesh. Because God, because knowing God's mighty act is a cause for us to glorify Him, so too for the angels. So they want to look into this. They want to ponder this. They want to study. They want to investigate. They want to learn more. Longing is to strongly desire. Look means to stoop down or nearby something. Like they're looking for, what is this all about? I want to understand it more. It's an amazing thought. That idea alone should be enough that though these uh, accounts of the birth of Christ, the remembrances that we traditionally do around Christmas with the Advent liturgy can become familiar to us, think of this. It's so astounding, it's so profound, it's so incredible that the angels long, they strongly desire, they desire to study, to look into, to understand redemption. Now, think about that. Shouldn't that prompt us? Shouldn't that encourage us, the objects of God's saving grace, 
to unpack it more fully, to ponder the amazing grace of God at work in our hearts and fully live in and rejoice in our own salvation. To rehearse these truths again and again and again, day after day during Advent, year after year during the Christmas season, and never grow tired of glorifying our great God, our gracious Redeemer. Now, Scripture is silent about most of the observations of the angels. We know the angels see much of what's going on. They're not omnipotent. They're not, uh, they don't see everything that goes on, but they see a lot of what happens uh, regarding God's interaction with us humans. So we don't know if the angels ever think about some of the things we produce, like our art, our literature, our music, our science, even though many of these things are no doubt inspired by God. So they, they may look at those things, but we don't know. Scripture's silent about that. But the way that God has paid the price for our sin, all by himself, that gets their attention. It's, in a way, it, that's entirely consistent with what they already know about God, his justice, his truth, his hatred of sin. God has redeemed us by sacrificing himself, demonstrating both his justice and his mercy. How remarkable and how sad that we should ever take this for granted. If heaven was held in mute astonishment, when the Son of God left the courts of glory to be poor, to be persecuted, to bleed, to die, not less must be the astonishment than when from those lofty heights, the angelic hosts look down upon a race, that's us, unconcerned amidst wonders such as those of the incarnation and the atonement. May the Lord impress on you and me that same level of astonishment, that same desire that the angels have to continually, daily, regularly explore and deepen our understanding of our salvation. That same wonder, that same thanksgiving, that same glory, right? That the angels who witnessed God's acts of redemption, which began with an angel announcing the good news of great joy, those same angels have never experienced, like those of us in this room who are in Christ, what it is like to be redeemed. I'm going to play a video here that helps us think about that as we close. smiling when he spoke the words made the world and did he cry about the flood what does God's voice sound like when he sings or when he's angry these are just a few things that the angels have on me well, I can't fly, at least not yet. I've got no halo on my head. And I can't even start to picture heaven's beauty. But I've been shown the Savior's love. The grace of God has raised me up to show me things the end. 
angels long to look into And I know things angels only wish they knew Thank you, Bill, for 